Well, good morning again, Christ Church Vienna. And uh, as we move from prayer, we go now to a time of scripture. And um, our reading this morning is from Romans chapter 11. We're finishing off our series in the Lord's Prayer with the doxology, that part of the Lord's Prayer that says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And so we're gonna read from Romans 11, a doxology. And actually, Sabrina, I know you're off screen, but would you read Romans 11 for us from the New Living Translation? Listen and follow along in your own Bibles in Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 33. Oh, how great are God's riches in wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we finish off a series that we've been doing since the beginning of September, looking at the Lord's Prayer. And so we've read the Lord's Prayer and we've read other passages that help um, bring out some of the aspects of the Lord's Prayer. And we get today to, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to have to tell you, um, the past couple of weeks have been glorious weather, and I hope you've been able to enjoy that outside. Uh, each of the past three weekends, I've taken time to go west, to drive towards the mountains west of Front Royal and Winchester, uh, to go hiking, to sit outside, um, just to enjoy the beauty of the creation. And as you drive west on 66, once you get past Gainesville and all the construction, and a little bit further on, it opens up into some hills or mountains. and when you see them in all the fullness of their orange and red and brown and yellow, I know for me, um, it brings out this, this doxology, this praise of God. Wow, this is amazing. This, this creation is beautiful. And, and a doxology is just that. It's a praising God. It's a, it's a you know, kind of falling over yourself with greatness, glory of who God is. And over the past couple of weekends, I've experienced that, whether it's going for a drive or a hike or just sitting out looking at the beauty of the autumn leaves and just thinking, I can't believe God made this. This is amazing that we get to experience it. What a great day, what a great weather, what great trees and mountains, um, and just to be in awe of who God is. So when we get to the Lord's Prayer, um, it's one of these prayers that we talk about the, the intimacy of our Father, our Father, the Our Father, our Father who art in heaven that the God who is in heaven is our Father. And then we bring our, our needs before him. We need daily bread and we need forgiveness of sins and we need deliverance. But we get to this doxology and a couple of notes on the, the doxology as we prayed in our tradition, it was not in the original text of the Bible. And that's why most of you, if you have a Bible, will see that it's not in there. There's often a footnote saying some later translations, hundreds and hundreds of years later included it. And yet, many churches of various traditions have used this doxology, this thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, when they prayed the Lord's Prayer. Um, most of the commentators note that it, the early Christians, especially those who were Jewish, like Peter or Paul or some of the, the early followers of Christ, who were all Jewish, would have expected a doxology when they were praying the Lord's Prayer. They would not have ended, deliver us from evil. They would have said, because everything is yours, God, yours is the kingdom, 
And so into your hands we give these prayers, or all glory be to you, God. Most all Jewish prayers that are recorded in the centuries before and after the time of Jesus include a doxology. And so for the earliest church to have used it in their liturgy, in their prayers, personal or corporate, meant that it carried on so that hundreds of years later it became normative to be prayed. And so while maybe it was not included in the original statement of Jesus, it would have been expected as a way to close out a prayer, like saying, Amen. It's a way of handing things over. So the doxology is not just there as an add-on that's been added in certain traditions. It has implications. There are implications for the doxology because it grounds our prayers in God. We are submitting our requests to God and to God's purposes. And it's expressing our dependence on and desire for God's glory. So even as we're praying and we're saying, this is what I need, or I need forgiveness, or I need bread, or I need deliverance, or I need um, protection from my own weaknesses, we also are praying and handing it over to God in the end. We're giving it over to God and we're giving all things over to God's glory. Whatever happens in my life, may it be for God's glory. And entrusting all things to him, all power is his. He knows all things. All kingdoms are his. I give it over to God. One of the beauties of ending the Lord's Prayer with this doxology of for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory is that it bookends a prayer that begins with our Father. And so on the one side, we begin with an intimacy that was incredibly challenging to, um, to the Jewish believer who had a high view of the glory and majesty of God, but didn't quite know the intimacy that Jesus was talking about, saying, the God whose name we can't even say, Yahweh, he is your father and he loves you and he wants you to come to him and bring your needs and requests to him. He has come for you and he wants you to come to him. But the other end is the recognition that it's not just a loving personal father, a heavenly grandfather. It is the king of glory. It is the Lord of the universe. It is the one who has all power, all glory, all kingdoms forever and ever. Amen. Both views are part of the Christian understanding of God, that God is holy and completely other. He is holy and we bow before him. He is completely omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, and yet he is our loving father and he cares deeply about us. Both are present. And ultimately this doxology, one of the great implications of it is that it brings our prayers to rest. It brings our prayers to rest because in it, we are coming to the end of our prayers and relinquishing all of things to God. And when I say relinquishing things to God, it's not giving up, it's giving over. It's not giving up on, you know, oh, I guess it doesn't matter what I do. I just pray and give it over to God. It's giving over all of our anxieties and fears and needs to God. It's a remembering that we give all things to him because all things are his. He is in control. He's got this. And he has it forever and ever. Amen. Our prayers in the way that we want them may not be answered now, but he is the king of all glory forever. And if we are his and we are in him, then we can entrust our future and our eternal future into the one who loves us and is our king. And so there's a place of rest 
that we come to. But the phrasing, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, also brings to question whether that's a part of how we live out our lives and the implications that it has on our lives as well. And so the question that it caused me to think about is, whose kingdom, power, and glory am I living for? Do I fully understand what Jesus means when he talks about a kingdom? When the Bible talks about the glory of God, when we say all power is God's. You know, one of the uh, commentators I was reading reminded me of uh, the story at the beginning of Luke. You may have heard the birth narrative of Jesus, right? That famous story that we think about at Christmas time, which is not too far away, is the story of Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem and Jesus being born in a manger. And we have all these idyllic images of it because it's tied to Christmas and these beautiful songs in a little town of Bethlehem. But the original story is a jarring story. It's a jarring story of two competing kingdoms. In fact, Luke begins his narrative in Luke chapter 1 saying, in this year of Caesar Augustus, this is what happened. And then in Luke chapter 2, we get that narrative that says, and a decree came out from Rome. A law went out from Rome saying everyone needed to go to their hometown to be taxed. And Mary and Joseph have to go to Bethlehem, miles away, on foot. And Mary gives birth. And there's no place to lay the baby. And they're not at home. And the baby is laid in a feeding trough. And yet some shepherds come and are told by angels, hey, that's the king of glory right there. And so we're getting in Luke chapter 1 and 2, and especially in chapter 2, not just this beautiful narrative of shepherds coming and there's the little baby, but a question. Who is king? The one who issues the decree or the one lying in the feeding trough? By the time Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus was about 60 years old, and he had been reigning for 25 years as the emperor in Rome. Rome was the most massive empire known in that part of the world. It covered all of the known lands. And so there in Rome, Caesar Augustus sat on his throne and everywhere he looked, everything was his. Everyone bowed to him. They had to pay to him. And if they didn't, his sword came and took them away. He was the one in total control. And his very name, Caesar, basically was equivalent of being savior and Lord. I'm the emperor, the king, the savior, the Lord. And by the time he was ending his life, he was largely thought of as divine. He was the king of glory. And yet, the Christian view was that that baby born in that manger was truly the king of glory. The one whose peasant parents had to follow Caesar's decree. The one who was put in a feeding trough because there was no room for them. The one who was a baby. A human child baby who was dependent on his parents. He is the Christ, or so we claim. And the question we're supposed to ask is, who has the power? Who is actually the king? And of course, Jesus' story unfolds where he's talking about a kingdom, but it's an altogether different sort of kingdom than the one that Caesar was talking about. Caesar brought peace, but he brought peace if you bowed to him. He brought peace with a sword at your neck. He brought peace for his own glory in the expansion of his own kingdom. Jesus' kingdom came to bring you and me peace. 
and he took the sword on himself. In fact, the end of the book of Luke also ends with that same question, who is king? The one who is on the cross or the one who crucifies him? Pontius Pilate, under the authority of Caesar Augustus, is the one who has Jesus crucified. And as he's hanging on the cross, the sign over him says, King of the Jews, mocking him. And everyone walked by saying, oh, you're the Christ, you're the king. Who is really king? It's clearly Caesar, not the one hanging on the cross. But Jesus came to bring a different sort of kingdom, didn't he? It's an inside-out and upside-down kingdom. He came not in forceful power, but to endure the powers that be in order to transform us from the inside out. He didn't go to take over systems. He came to transform them from the individual as they came to know God in all of his fullness and were completely transformed on what matters and what was really powerful. And that's why it's an upside down kingdom that gaining power or having um, money or being in authority is not the way to transform the world that the creative purposes of God involve humility and suffering and death. To live is to die. And the one who humbled himself is the one who will be exalted. Jesus comes and brings an upside-down kingdom. It's a whole other view of kingdom and power and glory. And then he calls us to live out his kingdom purposes, to live out the kingdom of God, even while we live in the city of man. Yes, Rome may be in control, but you are citizens of the kingdom of God. This is an alternative view of kingdom and power and glory, a completely other definition than Caesar's. And it has implications for our lives, for our priorities and our aims. It calls us to humble ourselves, to disadvantage ourselves for the good of others, especially for the poor and the orphan and the immigrant but also to disadvantage ourselves and humble ourselves for our friends or our spouse or the people in our team at work. They're not people we're competing for the throne. We're competing for power. We're called to take up our cross and humble ourselves and disadvantage ourselves for the good of those all around us. In other words, to live in God's kingdom, even while living in the city of man, is to not need to be first or loved, or noticed, not needing to protect our position, or needing to be in control. It's a calling, as the kingdom of God is, into mangers and crosses, and a life that looks more like that than Caesar's. And it has implications, doesn't it? And so the question we ask again is, whose kingdom Whose power, whose glory am I living for? When I think about that personally, I think one way for us to think about it is, where do you place your hopes and your fears? When you think about the things you're most excited and hopeful about, the things you need most in life to be happy, or your greatest fears, what things come to mind? Usually underneath both our hopes and our fears is our true source of power and glory and kingdom, what we're really trusting and what we're really after. I think many of us, especially this year, have been wrestling with fears and anxieties. Some of those are tied to this global pandemic, to health, to economics, to politics and everything going on in our polarized country. 
And so these fears and worries circle in our heads. And every time I start going down the road of fears and anxieties, I ask, whose kingdom, what kingdom am I trying to build? Whose power am I trusting in? And usually it's something underneath that is not God. It's something else that I'm, I'm putting my hope in. This has to happen, then I'll be okay. This kingdom has to be built, then I'll be at peace. And it could be in my own life, my kids, at work, our nation, my health. And I think right now, I want us to also pause just to think about our political situation. We're a week away from um, a, an election. And I think the question of kingdom, power, and glory has implications. Um, the next four weeks, we're going to look at the book of Philippians, and we're going to look specifically on our calling to live in the kingdom of God, even while we live in the city of man, and the implications of God's kingdom in this world. And it really is tied to how we approach um, the political landscape and the aftermath of the election next week. But when we think about our political situation, I know that it's caused a lot of hope and a lot of fear and probably more fear. And I, I, I think it's, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who wouldn't say, this is the most important election in our lifetime, most important election in our lifetime. And, and we, we carry with that this idea that if, if this person isn't elected, if this person doesn't gain power or keep power, then imagine what will happen. And our brain goes down this road of our worries with po political issues that are important to us. And we think if this happens, then that, and I, I can't live, I can't live here. And there's a worry, anxiety, fear that comes up. And what it's telling me is that our hopes and our fears are tied to who is president or who's on the Supreme Court. And as a Christian, I have to ask myself, really? Is that really where your fears are? Is that really where your hopes lie? And it, look, it's not to diminish the issues. The political issues and even these positions of power, they are very important. They're important for our country. They're important for the world. And it's not to diminish the role of government or political involvement. Some of you are called vocationally into politics or into roles that are built around our governmental systems. Um, some of you have calling on particular issues. We're all called as citizens to vote and be engaged. These are important things. But, but even the president of the United States is not ultimate. He or she is at most penultimate. And probably pre-penultimate, meaning the most important thing in the world is not who is president. It's who is king. And so while these things are important, the doxology reorients us. And it causes us to say, we need to pray this doxology to remind ourselves, but also to pray that these things would be true, that the kingdom and the power and the glory would be recognized as God's. 
And the place we need to start, I think, is actually praying for ourselves and our own hearts. You know, we need to pray the Lord's Prayer as a regular practice. It's a great way to orient our prayers around uh, God as a loving Father and trusting all things into His hands to bring our needs our worries, our need for forgiveness, for deliverance, for bread into God's hands. But I think at this cultural moment, we especially need the doxology and we need it personally. So I was reading this past week an article on some revivals that happened historically in the country and around the world. And the author was surveying some of the telltale signs of revival, but he actually said, instead of using the word revival, we should talk about the spiritual renewal that happened in particular moments in cultural, in cultural moments. And he noted in the 1850s, New York City had this massive influx of people uh, going to church, 1850s, that in the early 1900s, there was a uh, Welsh revival, spiritual renewal, renewal happened in Wales. And in every time that this happened, it was a moment, a season, a year, a two years, three years of great spiritual renewal that led to cultural impact and transformation. But what preceded it was always concerted and ongoing prayer. And the concerted ongoing prayer of multiple Christians was actually not, not for converts, nor for their country or for peace and prosperity in, in their lives or their land. Rather, their prayers were to experience the glory of God, the presence of God, the fullness of God. It was prayers to experience God personally that led to transformation and spiritual renewal in their own lives that ultimately pushed them into repentance. Because when you experience the glory of God, you are brought down in repentance. Moses sees the burning bush and is in the presence of God, in the presence of the glory of God, and he drops to his knees and he is humbled and repents. Isaiah is brought before the throne room of God in heaven. And he, he cries out when he sees the glory of God, I am a man of unclean lips. I am a sinner. Peter, when Jesus calms the storm and he's in the boat and he realizes this is no mere rabbi, this is, this is somebody else. This might even be the embodiment of the Lord God Almighty. He says, depart from me, depart from us, I am sinful. The experience of the glory of God brings us to repentance and it pushes us out in this humility and love and grace and mercy. And so my invitation to you and to me, to all of us, during this season of anxiety and fear that coming 10 days and the weeks after it, is to pray not for outcomes, but for God in your life. Pray to experience the fullness of the glory and power of God in your life. And I need to pray that in my life. Think about what happens when you do. Stephen was the first martyr recorded in Acts chapter seven. He was one of the early disciples and was a leader in the church. He gets in trouble for proclaiming the gospel and as they are basically surrounding him with a lynch mob, ready to throw rocks at him, giant rocks to kill him, he's, he's on his knees. And it says that he sees heaven opened and he sees Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. In other words, he sees the glory of the risen Jesus. Now, Stephen had believed this. This was something he knew. He knew Jesus was crucified and risen. He believed Jesus had ascended into heaven. He believed Jesus was God sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. But in this moment, 
he experienced it. He experienced the glory of God. And he flows out in doxology and praise. And he's completely fearless. The experience of God makes you fearless. He proclaims the glory of God. He doesn't, he, he doesn't ask to be delivered. He doesn't beg for mercy. He simply proclaims the glory of Jesus Christ fearlessly. And as they are trying to kill him, he also brings out radical love, basically saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do not hold this against them. The experience of God gave him a courageous fearlessness and a radical love. That's what God wants to offer us. When your loving father, the one we pray our father to, when your loving father is also the all-powerful, all-glorious one, who is king of all and whose kingdom is forever, you can face anything. No matter what happens in your career, your health, or even this election, even if one day, even if one day it becomes illegal to proclaim Jesus as Lord, when your loving Father is the all-powerful, all-glorious one, who is king of all and whose kingdom is forever, you can face anything. Because you know the power of kings and of this world are not what's in control. They are not forever. What is and what does is yours already. Because your loving Father is also the Lord of the universe. So even if this great nation should pass away, and one day, it probably will. Empires don't last on this earth. Even if this great nation should pass away someday, his kingdom, God's kingdom is forever. We need doxology. We need it as a nation to experience the glory of God. But we need to start with households and individuals. And so pray. And I want you to pray with me to pray, I need your kingdom, God. I need your power and I need your glory. And I want to experience it today. We're going to take a minute um, to go to our reflection time. And as we go to our reflection time, I'm going to give you a minute and I want you to pray, God, show yourself to me. I want to experience your glory. I need my fears washed away. I need to be humbled and I need to entrust my kingdoms into your kingdom. I need to recognize you alone are the king of glory and not myself. So let me experience you this day. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer and reflection, praying for the kingdom and the power and the glory of God to be revealed to us. Amen.